I guess if we're sharing specific tactics around happiness, I can tell you what I'm working on. For me, it's like learning to say no Mm -hmm. and remembering that work is always going to be there. You have to manage yourself. No one is going to say, stop working. Like work is never going to say, don't do work. Work is living in capitalist societies. Work is going to always be happy with overachievers and hard workers and all that jazz. We don't have a culture here of looking at employees overall betterment, right? So until we're there, you have to be looking out for yourself. Be comfortable with no, don't overcommit. Remember that there's always tomorrow. And so it's okay to just walk away. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Leno. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at leno.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. What's up, JS Party people? Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? Well, with Raygun Air and Performance Monitoring, you have all the information you need at your fingertips to quickly find and fix errors and performance issues across your tech stack down to the line of code. Raygun makes it easy to monitor the impact of your performance improvements, quickly identify issues across web and mobile apps, and see how your code performs in the hands of your customers. This saves you time, this saves you money, and this saves your sanity. Head to raygun.com to join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day. Again, raygun.com to give them a try with a free 14-day trial. is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We take requests just like your favorite wedding DJ. You can head to jsparty.fm slash request and let us know what you'd like to hear about on the pod. We also have an awesome back catalog. Find our recommended and popular episodes at jsparty.fm. Okay, let's get into it. Hey, it's party time, y'all. Hello, JS Party people, and welcome to another week's fabulous JS Party, where we have a party every week talking about JavaScript and the web. I am K-Ball. I will be your MC this week, and I'm joined by two amazing panelists. First off, Amel, long time no chat. How are you doing? I'm alive, everybody. I'm alive. I miss being on the show so much. Life has just been super busy. Maybe we'll talk about that today, but uh, happy to be back. Thank you for the warm welcome, K-Ball. We are excited to have you. And then the one, the only, Nick Nisi. Hoi hoi. How's it going? Going well. Glad that Mr. Burns is here with us. And <laughs> will this week have stories from Disney movies? Will it have song clips? Who knows? You never know with Nick. But today's discussion, we're going to be talking about work environments and particularly what makes for a really good environment for developers. And this was initially sparked as an idea because there was a Honeypot article, which as of this morning is not loading. So we'll see if they ever get that. But they had a developer happiness index where they're like, okay, where are developers the most happy? What are they doing? And it got me wondering, like, we've all been in very different work environments over our careers. What are the things that make for really good or really bad work environments? Is this like a trap? 
It's the ping pong tables, right? Like that's what makes or breaks it. Honestly, there's so many factors that go into like making a workplace healthy um, that are completely outside of the sphere of tech, right? So tech is like a circle in the larger sphere. There's certain things that are unique to tech that I think can either exacerbate your level of unhappiness or at minimum keep, you know, your anxiety at bay, right? Because it's a nice place to work. But I'd say tech is like a really stressful industry for lots of reasons, you know, constant change. Like we haven't developed a lot of good social norms around best practices. It's not like we're doctors, you know, we're doctors have been doctors for like centuries. People have been web developers for a relatively short amount of time. And I think we're very much a young industry and we're still kind of reeling from that youngness uh, as everybody's trying to figure out how to do something the best way. And then turns out like, Three months later, you find out the hard way, like not the best way, you know? So I don't know. I'm not really answering your question very well because I think if I start answering it, I won't stop. So (laughs) I want to like hear from Nick and then we can circle back a little more on that. Well, for me, it's more of a foosball table. That's the big key, not ping pong so much. But no, I think kind of to your point, Samel, like there's a lot of stereotypes that we have to overcome to quote unquote typical developer is a loner who sits alone in a dark basement and works alone. And that's really not always the case as I sit here alone in my dark basement. There's a lot of of that. There is a huge social aspect to it, but we don't always prioritize that. And it's not really quote unquote marketed that way. So that's an interesting thing to dig into the social aspect, because on the one hand, I think social connection and being connected to your coworkers is really valuable and We pick where we work, at least partially, because we like the people there. On the other hand, the idea of, oh, we're like family here and all these other things has been used to do all sorts of toxic types of work environments. So kind of where do you all fall on that? I would say that you kind of hit the nail on of. I would say something that's very common in tech, like you see the unlimited vacations, you know, unlimited PTO, but like nobody takes it, you know, (laughs) fan companies popularizing like free food and laundry. And why don't you just live here? Let's just maximize your day. And so you're productive to the nth degree and can be maximally efficient at work, uh, you know, so you don't have to think about anything else. We've kind of applied so much of that culture of over-optimizing, you know, we've kind of taken that to like another level in our industry where we're like, hey, let's help people optimize their lives so they can do more work. Um, I don't like, I don't think we need to do that. I think we should be more inefficient and I'm into like going to the grocery and like feeling my vegetables and stuff. That doesn't have to be a universal thing. I just mean that like, I'm into giving myself some slack. You know, I don't feel the need to optimize everything. And even though it's like, an internal bias that I have as an engineer, you know, so it's something I'm constantly checking myself on. So I think boundaries at work are super important. Um, and for me, like the best way I've managed to avoid that, uh, like, or I say have good boundaries with at work is really, I intentionally kind of pick companies and teams that are diverse in the sense that like folks that, you know, I don't like working at places that have monocultures. So, you know, if everybody's like in their twenties, has no kids, isn't married or whatever. That's a a little bit of a monoculture and it's going to skew towards a certain, I'd say cult. What is cult the right word? What's the right word? I don't know. It's a good word. Yeah. So I think for me, a 
balance and, you know, having diversity of lifestyle at work really helps kind of, I think, combat that because, you know, people have lives and monocultures are bad. Yeah, for sure. I've definitely seen my priorities change, you know, as I've become older and had kids. Uh, I used to want to code all the time or go out. I remember specifically, like when I was younger, going out to, you know, get drinks or dinner with coworkers. And we'd like be talking about work and we'd be making like all these decisions about like things we were going to do or like ways to architect things. And then coming back the next day and like anybody who wasn't there just kind of felt out of the club a little bit. Now, like, you know, five o'clock comes around and my focus is on my kids until like, until they go to bed. And then usually I just want to go to bed after that. So coding doesn't take a priority or my job doesn't take a priority after a specific time. Like there's definitely more important things and it's been relatively easy, I'd say, to transition to that. But I know that it can be more difficult for sure. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to think about. And especially in this world where now there's a lot more remote work and people are in different time zones and other Mm -hmm. things. Like if the expectation is you're hanging out after hours at the bar or whatever, like that doesn't work so well, not only with parents, but if you have folks who are in different locations. Right. Work is work. And I think if work is just work, anything beyond the eight hours or whatever you're supposed to dedicate to it five days a week, that's a good start, right? I think like when work starts to kind of blur that eight hour boundary, or I personally think even eight hours is unhealthy. Like I would love to be at a place where I have a 32 hour work week or a 30 hour work week. I think I'm more productive that way, actually. I'd like to kind of compress my time, but I don't live in France. So, oh, well, you know, I think that what do they have like a th- official 34 hour work week in France or something? I'd say when work starts to kind of spill over into the other parts of my life, that's where like I get stressed or burnt out. And I'm fairly good at putting myself in that cycle. Like personally, um, maybe this is TMI for people, but you know, I'm a little bit of an overachiever and yeah, I like working hard, pushing myself professionally, taking on more responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. That constantly leads to, I would say, needing to kind of like force myself to have some downtime and reestablish boundaries. But I, I'm constantly fighting that for myself. Like I'm constantly fighting my boundaries with work. And it's not often because of my boss or my team. It's like self-inflicted, you know? So that's something else to like, sometimes you are your own worst enemy in that regard. That raises a really interesting question, right? Because I think a lot of folks, both in this and in other kind of knowledge intensive industries fit in this sort of anxious overachiever model where people are like feeling, and this is where a lot of like imposter syndrome and other things start to come in of you feel like I'm never good enough. And so I work really, really hard and push myself to be better and to get there. But that leads to this blending of boundaries and we're working too much and whatever. I had one of my reports be like, oh yeah, I, you know, I felt like we were behind on this. So I was going to work this weekend. And I was like, dude, It's okay. If you're behind, that's not your fault. That's actually part of the system. So what I'd love to dig into here is what are the aspects of the work environment? What are the systemic factors that lead to these boundaries getting blurred or not? Because like most of us in this industry push ourselves. We're here because we were good at something and we pushed and we spent a lot of time learning. There's a lot of stuff you have to learn to do this. So we're all of the character types that is going to lead to poor boundaries if we're not careful. What are the factors that go into a work environment that prevent that from happening? I'm staring at what is possibly the chillest person on earth, Nick Nisi. <laughs> Nick, do you ever get stressed, actually? 
<laughs> yes. so I'm, just, I'm just waiting to hear Nick's response. I'm like the Hulk in, uh, in the first Avengers really? movie. I'm just okay. always stressed. That's my secret. <laughs> I feel like, Nick, you, your voice is a little ASMR for me because you're just so <laughs> calm, you know? So I love it. You are the yin to my yang. I'm like, ah, and you're like, what up, people? You know, <laughs> I just have this this handy mute switch ready and I just scream into the void with that. Aww. No, no, I do feel overly stressed a lot. And I think that that is one thing that really leads to the blurring of boundaries. Like if I was going to going to think about like when that happens regularly, it's when I don't feel like I was productive enough during the day, then I feel like I do have to come in and work after I get my kids to sleep or over the weekend and try and catch up a little bit. And I hate that feeling. And it's not usually like my fault. Like a lot of times it's just, I don't have the knowledge or the understanding that I need to do what I need to do. Like the requirements are poor or things like that. And I take it on me. Like I, I put that pressure on me as being like, well, I should know this or I should know how to go and do this, even though I may not, you know, have any insight into how to actually do that. And so I think that having that good support structure of like clearly defined tasks that are well-groomed with all of the information that I need really helps me to stay on track because the second that I'm waiting or looking around or asking somebody, then I've already got, you know, another tab open with the news or Reddit or something going. And then it's just kind of like, well, I didn't, I surfed Reddit all day, I guess. I don't have anything to show for the day, so I better go make up some time later. I really hate that. So that actually, to me, is sounding like support staff and and like well-defined roles, right? Mm-hmm. So like someone who has a well-defined kind of probably product management role that is responsible for lining things up, figuring out dependencies, making sure that the right information gets to the right people, separating out who's responsible for figuring out the problem and who's responsible for doing the work. I think that's one place where those are two very different types of work. And when you blur those lines and have the same people doing both things for, at least for the same projects, like I find myself, I do both of those types of work, but when I'm in an implementation, I usually try to stay only in implementation and be like, okay, for this project, y'all are figuring out what you want me to do and I'm going to do it. And for this project, I'm going to figure out what we're going to do, but I'm not going to do it. You're going to do it. (laughs) You know, and kind of having those separated at least for me, leads to a lot less of that kind of weird blurred lines and Mm -hmm. and that type of thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. A big point of anxiety in our industry is the fact that I think there's so much discovery and, you know, discovery is often coupled with design and implementation and our discovery phase is like totally spread out. And if you're looking at work as a, a little bit of a pyramid structure where, you know, you have maybe more junior folks on your team and with a few kind of mid, mid-level people with then even fewer senior people, right? You really kind of want to try to make sure that the decision-making is clear. You know, if I have a junior engineer on my team, like the decisions for them need to be really clear and laid out. Like they should have less decision-making while they're doing their work, right? Things need to be very clear. Whereas I think, you know, for senior people that are a little 
that may be on the, you know, kind of the bleeding edge of the, the discovery train. <laughs> you know, I think maybe you're involved with making those decisions or, you know, it's fine. You're, you know, you're more comfortable with uncertainty, right? But I think it's really important to know like where you fall on that line because some people really need to have clear decisions and clear instructions and, they're, you know, they're more kind of like executors. And some folks are more, you know, creative and they're like, okay with like figuring it out on the go, but like both have their trade-offs and figuring it out on the go is also extremely stressful and like highly overrated. I think planning is something we are just universally not good at as an industry. And I think it's just because we're often moving so fast. You have folks kind of um, also committing to deadlines without engineering input. That's a huge cause of stress, you know, so you have people trying to like, you know, there's a lot of hero culture trying to rise to the mythical deadline, you know, that was set by someone that, you know, wasn't you. There's just so many causes for stress around planning, discovery, et cetera. And a lot of projects are like waterfall uh, projects in the sense that like, there's a deadline, there's a set of things that they want and like, you know, go, but there hasn't been enough discovery and planning to actually account for that waterfall because folks are maybe doing fake agile, you know, so they have like doing this scrum fall thing, which is like the most painful thing in the world because you're pretending to do agile and bite things off week by week or in a biweekly basis. But really like you have a hard deadline and like you can't afford to like spread out your, you know, discovery like that. So I feel like what we need uh, as an industry is like some kind of a litmus test for like what type of culture is on your team or what type of project is this, you know, where in the spectrum is this falling, you know, is this scrum waterfall and then combat that with the team cultures, you know, you can kind of maybe come up with some type of a formula for like, what's the healthiest way to operate given certain inputs. But here I am trying to make a program out of this. No, I mean, I think that actually will lead well into a next segment. So let's take a short break but then come back and start talking about, I think there's two aspects of what you mentioned here that would be really useful. One is how do you know when you're looking at a work culture, maybe you're interviewing, what are some of the litmus tests or questions you can ask to identify what are you getting yourself into? And two is if you are an individual in a culture that is not where you'd like it to be, where you're, it's stressed, where all these things are there, what are some tactics that you can take to improve things at least for yourself and ideally for the rest of your team? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sourcegraph. Sourcegraph is code search for every developer and team. And in this segment, I'm talking with Byung Lu, co-founder and CTO of Sourcegraph. And he's sharing exactly how code search works and how it will work for you and your team. So Byung, I want you to share exactly what code search is and how teams can use it. So Adam, I think the best way to describe Sourcegraph is that it's this single search and exploration tool that encompasses the entire universe of code that you might care about. And that includes all the code inside your organization, code written by other teams, as well as code that might be external to your organization. For example, open source dependencies that you're pulling in. So it's a single portal, a single search box that lets you type in a string literal or a regex pattern and instantly search across all that code 
and jump to the specific points in that code that you're interested in learning about. And then it becomes this interface that allows you to easily navigate and build up a mental model of how that part of code works. So whether it's trying to find a needle in a haystack that you're concerned about or trying to find uh, examples of how to use a, a particular unfamiliar library or package, or maybe you just want to jump to a bunch of places in code that you can then link to and discuss with teammates. And this is all in the service of eventually getting back into your editor so that you have all the context, all the information that you need to know about the area of code that you're modifying and get back into that flow state where you're just coding at the speed of light and you feel like you're, you're making rapid progress towards that bug fix or, or that feature that you're currently building. All right, if code search powered by Sourcegraph sounds like something you and your team can use, head to info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog and click the button that says try Sourcegraph now. You can install locally, deploy it to a server or to a cluster. They have a quick start guide that takes less than five minutes to install Sourcegraph using Docker, so it's too easy to give it a try. Again, head to info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog. Well, during the break, Amel was sharing all of her great plans and ideas about around, it sounded almost like industry code of conduct or something that companies could say, like, here's the things we're going to do to make our work environments good for our engineers or our employees at large. Amel, do you want to, to repeat some of what you were saying there and, and maybe expand on it and let us know, like, what are you thinking? What is it that the ideal work environment would do that would make for a great place to work. I had this midnight thought last night, what it would take to like change the culture in tech. It's going to sound kind of morbid and I apologize, um, especially for, for the newbies. Please do not let what I'm saying discourage you in any way. But I do think the culture and technology as a whole is a little toxic and it's not necessarily just intentionally toxic in terms of like discrimination, et cetera. It's not the stuff that, you know, you would think of typically. I, I find it toxic because I think we don't really acknowledge the skill building and the maintenance part of our job, right? In the sense that it takes a lot to become a software engineer and it takes a lot to stay a good software engineer. And there's culture around like what it takes to support a thriving career that I think, you know, we don't acknowledge. And so wouldn't it be cool if we had like a set of standards or that companies could commit to, to show that they abide by certain kind of cultural norms, right? So as in like, 40 hour work week for real, you know, we give you personal development time at work as well as a budget because we, we acknowledge that you're always learning new skills, right? You know, we don't set deadlines without your consent. So all these things that are kind of like really common problems in our industry, um, what if we could just kind of nip those in the butt, right? Like including diversity standards, right? Like wouldn't that be cool? And so it would be nice to kind of just have some kind of like a, a little like certification seal of approval, like, you know, stamp for like, hey, um, we're a healthy quote unquote company, like come join us, right? Because often it's really hard to know the company culture until you get there. And it's, you know, you asking all the right questions in an interview sometimes doesn't even, you know, get you that, you know? And so having some kind of a transparent, like you said, code of conduct for your employees, for your tech employees, you know, that have really hard, stressful jobs, like, that would be cool. I think your point about the amount of time that it takes to upskill and to then stay and maintain those skills is really important. There's this 
constant toxic discussion about, oh, do you have to be passionate to be a developer and all of these things? But I think some of where that came from is an overlay to this or is related to that is the sense that currently in our industry, you are generally not given time to keep your skills up to date or to develop them. No. And to be successful in this industry, you need to spend a lot of time developing your skills and keeping them up to date. Exactly. If you are quote unquote passionate, which I I think is a terrible way to measure. And I saw a great article recently about like the dispassionate developer and things like that. But if you are quote unquote passionate, you are probably putting a lot of time into doing exactly those things, upping your skills, maintaining your skills, doing those sorts of things. You should not have to be passionate. You should be able to do this work for a paycheck because it's a well-paying job and will support you and your family and various other things. But you should also know going in that you are going to have to continually invest a quite a bit of time on learning and maintaining your skills that will probably, unless you're very lucky, not be supported directly by your work folks. And so if you are not passionate about this, wanting to do it in your spare time, you need to account for that and figure out how are you going to do that work to keep yourself competitive and up to date? Uh, yes. Uh, the amount of time it takes to stay viable in this industry and the fact that we aren't acknowledging that companies don't actually build in time. It's kind of ridiculous. You know, you kind of add the fact that companies don't ever have the same stack, right? Every company is a snowflake. So every new employee is walking in, not only having to learn the domain, but they're also having to learn the stack. And of course, it's never, ever, ever like a standard implementation of XYZ, right? That's just software. Software has cruft and stories and skeletons and, you know, oh, we're using TypeScript this way, actually, you know? So all of that is put on the employee's personal time. And I have to wonder, like, as an industry, I I just think by adopting more standards and practices around giving employees time to invest in themselves, et cetera, what we're doing is we're acknowledging that, like, the current pace is not sustainable. And in order for all of us to go faster and do it sustainably, like, we have to slow down, right? So you have to slow down to go fast. And it's counterintuitive, but by reinvesting in, in people, you're going to have happier employees who will likely stay there longer. As an industry, we all benefit, right? Like the collective industry benefits from, from this type of a, a change. So it's a big one, right? Because JavaScript is getting pretty complex these days. <laughs> what? And apps are always complex, right? Applications, as you say, like every application is its own special snowflake. There yeah. is almost no generic application out there. And I think, you know, talking about standards, one I'd like to promote is it will take you six months to get up to speed and productive in a code base. Minimum. We recently made that explicit inside of the startup I work at, Humu, uh, where we say, as part of our onboarding documents, we expect you to be still getting up to speed for the next six months as you get on this. Because what we found is both individuals going through the process would get down on themselves. Why am I still feeling slow? Why am I unproductive? But then also their teammates need to know what to expect. This person isn't contributing as much or they're asking a lot of questions. Yeah, they're three months in. We don't expect them to be fully productive for another three months. I also expect other teammates to have to slow down, right? So, and budgeting for that and planning for that, right? Going back to the planning thing where you're looking more holistically at like your inputs and outputs, keeping in mind that we should dedicate part of everybody's time to go towards this new person, right? Like mm-hmm. we should expect that. Engineers are also like, I don't know what profession, there probably are professions that have more expensive onboarding, but it's a pretty expensive process to onboard an engineer because given the stat that Kval just shared which I totally agree with you know 
takes long for people to become productive. And then it takes longer for them to become domain experts as well, which is this whole other thing that's very unique to your company. And so yeah, retention is, is something that like we have an issue with in our industry. And I have to wonder what it's like for people because it's people do seem to change jobs every two to three years. And so every two to three years, you're learning a new stack and a new domain. You have to wonder like how many times can you do that throughout your career, right? <laughs> like, um, So I don't know. For me, like JavaScript is just becoming daunting and no, do not enter. Like we're big and scary, like the Wizard of Oz, you know, the Wizard of Oz. I feel like the level of complexity that we've added to JavaScript or modern web application development to be specific, like it's not friendly to newbies at all. It seems to only be getting more complex. Yeah, like it's just, we're not giving people the time to really scale up. Like what are we doing? We're gonna be left with nobody on the battlefield, right? <laughs> Except for the nerds that made this mess. I think kind of going towards that and something that Rebecca said in the chat is uh, about hiring junior developers. I think that junior developers are a really good way to promote that culture of learning and keeping everyone humble and possibly shaping the stack a little bit because you don't want it to get overly complex and take you know longer than six months to get somebody onboarded into. And having continuous junior developers coming in and the more senior folks teaching them and, you know, really going through the pains of not being productive, like individually, but, you know, pairing or giving them a, I was going to say a lecture, but that can be boring too, but like a lecture on why things are the way they are within this project and how like it evolved to this. That's all really important and really good way to keep that going. So we've talked a lot about the problems. What are some tactics that individuals can take to address this now? And I'm interested at multiple levels. So if you're a existing senior-ish engineer, what are some things that you can do to help either yourself or your company improve? If you're a junior engineer coming in, like what are specific things that people can do to improve both personal situations and team situations? I think if you're a senior developer, you really kind of, at this stage, you kind of want to start really thinking about what you want to kind of have as your niche, right? You kind of want to start developing your T, your T meaning like your T shape, you know, like what, what is your breadth of expertise and what's your depth of expertise and really kind of start making strategic decisions because we all know the shelf life of software. And so just, you know, you kind of really want to be strategic about like what you invest your time into. Um, I can tell you like, I'm not the first to jump on every single new thing anymore, right? I'm very picky about what I spend time learning and what I will invest in because, you know, my time is really valuable. And I've noticed with folks that are newer in the industry, they're just looking for something to latch onto and they want to learn all the things, you know, like cloud, front end, this, that, you know, it's like awesome, you know? <laughs> but I think for me, it's at this stage, it's really about like developing your expertise and your niche and making sure that you're still, you have breath, but really focusing on areas of depth in a strategic way that are going to help like amplify your career and really looking for companies that you can grow that depth in, right? So making sure that the company that you're at is able to like support your plan for the next two to three to four years, you know, and making sure that you can grow with the company and you're not just coasting. Unfortunately, like there's always going to be a level of uncomfortableness. You know, if you're not uncomfortable as a software engineer writing modern code, tell me your secret. Yeah. I was going to say maybe 
uh, for more senior folks on the team, maybe leading, kind of leading by example in that you are an advocate for this type of learning. You're always pushing for like having the budget to do more things. You're always trying to learn a, a different thing that may not really make sense for your tech stack, but it's going to help you in the long run and helping others by being an advocate for them as well for getting things like that done. I have a couple of tactics that I use that I recommend to folks, and I'm cognizant that some of them may work better for me because of various types of privilege. You know, I'm an older white dude with a lot of experience, so like these may or may not apply in your situation. But one is being very deliberate about blocking out which, what time I'm available and what time I'm not available. So I work 5.30 to 2. Starting at 2 o'clock, I'm taking care of my kids. It is blocked on my calendar. I tell folks I may be available on Slack. If you Slack me, I might be able to respond. I'm not going to be able to do much because I'll be on my phone. And part of that, sometimes other things come up. This came up a lot in the pandemic. Working on a project, I'll let people know, like, I cannot work on this for the next two days. Then I will work on it. And being very, very aggressive and clear about communication there. And just saying when I'm available, being open about that, but also very, very clear about when I'm not. And Actually, going into the pandemic, I was not available a lot because we were still figuring out our childcare situation. And I was worried that folks would take this badly. Like, oh, you know, he's not available that much. He's not doing work. So I'd say all this. But I, what I actually got was a lot of people commenting either directly to me or indirectly to my manager or whatever about like how helpful it was to have that clarity and to have the communication. And so it may be, once again, that this is related to my situation and privilege, but I think it's something that is broadly visible is we can be a lot clearer about our own lines so long as we are clear about communicating them to folks. I can do this. I can't do this. No, sorry, I can't take on anymore today. That type of thing. The other tactic that I use that I definitely recommend to folks is I try to only commit up to about 90% of my capacity each week. 90 is a lot. Well, I buffer inside of that too. I reserve 10% specifically for learning and reading new things, 10% wow. of my work time. That makes sense. Some of that is blocked on my calendar. Some of it I don't block on my calendar, uh, but I just try not to commit as high. And this is something that I can't do all the time. I've been in a crunch project the last two weeks because we were just sort of short on some skill that I happened to have. And so I was providing it in multiple places and it was a crunch time and that could happen. But deliberately under committing as much as possible and reserving that time not just to be makeup for where I messed up in my estimation, which that's another thing. Like that 90% is after I've padded my estimations and whatever. Like estimation is a skill that we could get into and go a long time on, right? Doing better estimates and estimates up front would improve a lot of people's work lives. But even after all of the estimate related padding, reserving time that is there for me to read and learn and try things. That's awesome. You've got you time at work. Yeah. You're literally investing in yourself so you can invest in everybody else. So it's like literally going back to the company in an exponential way. Exactly. It feels like, oh, I can't do this because I won't be productive. But if you do that for six months, at the end of that, you're already as productive as you would have been doing 100% of the time at the beginning. Totes. And then the next six months, you're going to be more productive. And the next six months, you're even more productive. It adds up. Yeah. Yeah, no, 120%. I guess if we're sharing specific tactics around happiness, I would say for me, I can tell you what I'm working on. It's definitely similar to Kevin. Um, sorry, Kate Ball. Like, does anybody call you Kevin, actually? 
Some people do. You can call me Kevin if you want to. K-Ball's like, the government. <laughs> the government calls me Kevin. <laughs> My wife. Your wife. Okay, that's cute. For me, it's like learning to say no mm-hmm. and remembering that work is always going to be there. You have to adult, you have to manage yourself, right? Like no one is going to say, stop working. Like work is never going to say, don't do work. Work is living in capitalist societies. Work is going to always be happy with overachievers and hard workers and all that jazz. You know, Um, we don't have a culture here of looking at employees, overall betterment, right? So until we're there, you have to be looking out for yourself. Be comfortable with no, don't overcommit. Remember that there's always tomorrow. And so it's okay to just walk away. And One thing I've started doing a while ago, and it's been working very well uh, in order to help with walking away, is kind of developing a little bit of a rotunda. And when I say rotunda, it's like a, here's everything that's in my head before I leave for the day, write it all down. And then I can just like walk away. Because if I don't do that, you know, and I'm not as strict about it as as I wish I was. When the days that I don't do that, you know, I'm constantly thinking about work because I didn't want, I don't want to forget that thing. So if you, but if you write it down, you're free of it and you, in the morning you can come back and remember it, you know? And so just free yourself, like develop rituals for detaching from work. That's the thing, like, especially as knowledge workers, you know, my company gets so much more of my time than they even know because, you know, in your subconscious, you're solving problems and, you know, you're always like thinking about the problem. And so you have to consciously develop ways to like remove yourself. Yeah. There's something, it might be from book writing, maybe like don't ever finish that paragraph for the day, like leave it halfway unfinished so that you can just pick it up easily and jump right in the next day. Like that, that's something that you can definitely do. And, and and I try and do that with work, whether it's doing that where I, you know, I know what I have to do to make this work and I'll just leave it for tomorrow. Cause that way I have an easy win right when I start, or it's what you do, Amel, and that's taking kind of rigorous notes about what I did and the thought tree that like came to the actual conclusion that I'm at. Because oftentimes, you know, there's a lot of thinking that goes into a very little amount of code. And so it maybe looks like I spent all day writing 11 lines, but it took me a long time to figure out that those are the exact 11 lines that I want to write. Oh, yeah. Oh, writing code should always be the last part of your process, too. Like, mm-hmm. think of, you know, design, <laughs> you know, alignment, blah, 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 you know, then you write code. Um, but yeah, totally agreed, Nick. And by the way, like, I guess the technique and, it, it, you know, this isn't obviously going to work for everybody. Everybody's different, but it's really just like, it's like a work journal, right? So it's like, what did you mm-hmm. do today? today and you know having a ritual at the end of the day beginning of the day um and kind of like taking notes as you go along for like what you're doing or not doing um and i've noticed that when i shift my focus around like what did i accomplish versus what did i do those are two different questions (laughs) you know i always have to check myself on like what did i accomplish right because sometimes you can do a lot and be super busy and i'm very unhappy when i'm like constantly like pulled into different directions and I'm super fragmented. It's busy work without really accomplishing anything. Well, you go to a lot of meetings too. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) Right. And so, uh, so I always have to check my accomplishments list because that also is another good way to make sure like you're, you're moving in the direction that you need to be moving and that's satisfying. And for me, like if I go extended periods without significant accomplishments, right or enough accomplishments to feed my base level of uh, just kind of um, internal happiness, then I'm like, that's when I start to get miserable. I have a tactic that's almost the inverse of that, which is 
the priorities list. I start every day with a list of priorities between, I want to have at least one and less than five. Mm -hmm. And if I don't have that at the beginning of my day, I write it. A lot of times I add it to my next day or add it, you know, I know that day this is going to be important and I'll add it ahead of time. But those are my list. And try to get those done. If I get those done, I'm good. Yeah. Other stuff's going to happen. I'm a manager some of the time or like one of the things I do is manage. So I've got a lot of meetings. <laughs> but my priorities list, if I get those things done, I'm good. I do that too. And I use the last 10 to 15 minutes of my day to make that. So I have like a, a cool down routine that's in my to-do list and it just pops up at, at 4.30 or 4.45. These are like, it's like 10 steps and they're really easy to go through, but it's like write notes about the next thing to do. Push up any code that I have, clean up my work area, which I sometimes don't, and then write out what I'm going to start with the next morning. All right. So there's a whole set of tactics that you can use to make work a little bit better for you. Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about work environments we've worked in that have been either particularly good or particularly bad and what made them so. This episode is brought to you by our friends at O'Reilly. Many of you know O'Reilly for their animal tech books and their conferences, but you may not know they have an online learning platform as well. The platform has all their books, all their videos, and all their conference talks. Plus, you can learn by doing with live online training courses and virtual conferences, certification practice exams, and interactive sandboxes and scenarios to practice coding alongside what you're learning. They cover a ton of technology topics, machine learning, AI, programming languages, DevOps, data science, cloud, containers, security, and even soft skills like business management and presentation skills. You name it, it is all in there. If you need to keep your team or yourself up to speed on their tech skills, then check out O'Reilly's online learning platform. Learn more and keep your team skills sharp at O'Reilly.com slash changelog. Again, O'Reilly.com slash changelog. I was in a work environment one time. It was at a startup. This was quite a while ago. And the CEO would yell at his EA behind closed doors, but he would yell at her and could not seem to understand at the time. I think he did eventually, and you know, credit to him, he grew a lot, but he could not understand why that would upset the rest of the company and kill everyone's productivity for the day. And I think one of the things, or sort of the lesson I would take from this to generalize is that people are leaky. We're all embedded in these social networks at work. If one person is really unhappy or one person is getting treated very unfairly, that ripples out to all sorts of folks. And I think having in mind that if some people are unhappy or are bad apples and treat people poorly or whatever, it's actually probably better, even if they're really important in one dimension, for them to leave the company. I have coworkers that I love working with or have had coworkers that I've loved working with where I could tell they're getting unhappy and they're just not a good fit. And I say, you know what? Like, I really like working with you. I'd like to keep working with you. You're unhappy. You should probably find a new job. Like we can maybe fix this. Let's talk about it. But if we try for two months and we're not fixing it, like let's find you a better place to work. That's going to fit you better. Cause 
when one person's unhappy, it radiates. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's also just not only one person that's unhappy. It's sometimes when you have someone that's just dragging the team down. That's another situation. If you put someone who's maybe, I hate using the word performer, but I apologize, I'm going to use it. Like high performers, low performers. You put somebody that's quote unquote a low performer with, you know, this high functioning team or whatever. You think like, oh, the high functioning team will affect, you know, this person and help them out. But it's like the opposite, you know, like that one person can like throw the monkey wrench into the whole situation. The princess and the pea thing, right? You got to find that pea and take it out. I'll share some good examples, good culture norms I got to experience as folks being remote and on Slack. You know, there's kind of a lot of intention around like when you ping people, like for this is specifically for like a, a globally distributed team that I was on, you know, folks would intentionally like not mention their name, you know, in Slack, even without the at sign, they would like put the name uh, and they put like slashes in between their name so that the Slack mentions wouldn't pick them up. And, you know, so there's really like thoughtful considerations around like, hey, this person isn't working right now and we're a globally distributed team. And so how do we respect their time zone and their boundaries? And in, in general, I would say like lots of other good examples are for me around like remote working culture gone right. You know, I think that's the true liberation for our people. When I say our people, I mean tech people. Like if we could just, every company could adopt like remote first, good remote first uh, cultural standards, regardless of whether they're remote or not. Like it just would help across the board with like transparency and um, communication, you know, people not having anxiety, people being able to do their best work, respecting different communication styles. And so I would say more of that, more examples like that would be really nice. Mm -hmm. To what you said about Slack, every time somebody uses something that's not my name, like with, you know, N dash I C K or something like, like that. I always add that to the list of highlighted words. <laughs> I'm the, I go the opposite way with that. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> OMG. At my current work, we actually had a push because folks were struggling with disconnecting to the pandemic and they were saying like strongly recommended take Slack off your phone. Mm -hmm. Yes. Just have it on your work computer. Don't have it on your phone. And I actually really appreciated this as something that the company was pushing and saying like, hey, you are putting this on here. We're saying don't because it's stressing you out. And that's our problem as a company. <laughs> yeah. If something's really an emergency, they should know how to reach you. We have an on-call system. Yes. If you're on call, you can get paged on call. I got paged by an accidental on call at the beginning of this thing. And I slacked in and said, what's the deal? Can somebody else take it? They did. It was fine. But like there's an on-call system. That's what should be reliable for off hours, not Slack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And don't be afraid to set up your, your Slack to have your, I, don't, I forgot what they call it in the UI specifically, but they have like off hours where even if somebody mentions you, it's not going to actually give you an alert between, I have it between like 6 and 7 a.m. or something like that. Nick is like, I have it between 6 and 6.30. Only, <laughs> only 30 minutes in a day where you can't reach me, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's a little more than that. I think it's like 5 to, to 7 or something like that. 5 p.m. to 7 a.m., right? Not just <laughs> yes, yes, right. <laughs> 1,700 to 700. But it also like gives you right there in the UI, like, or maybe it's only if you're DMing someone. But if you're DMing someone who has that set up, it will say that they're not going to get this message. And it gives you an extra little link that you can click that will actually send it through. And so lets you 
kind of continue on and carry on and mention them without it actually popping up on their phone. And if they manually go in and check Slack, it's there and they can see it, but it's not something that is going to disrupt them if they're not actually looking at it. So I definitely set that up and I kind of take the liberty of assuming that other people have too. And so I will continue, not that I like ever message after hours, but if I do, I'll have it set up and just assume that they're ignoring their phone because it's not actually going through to them. Maybe that's a bad assumption. Yeah. Well, it would, wouldn't it be nice if your company had a standard around that though, where everybody had to set that up? Yeah. That would be nice. Yeah. I think that is overwhelmingly one of the messages we have here is like, we're all trying to do individual solutions, but this is a systemic issue and the company needs to set standards and have things because otherwise you're always wondering like, oh, well, if I'm not on, does that mean people are like disappointed in me? Am I letting my teammates down? Like if I'm taking all this time for childcare, are they going to be mad at me? All these different pieces. Whereas like if we address it at a systemic level, it's a lot cleaner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. For me, the root cause of a lot of this also just comes from a synchronous culture, right? Like if you have a culture where decisions need to be made synchronously all the time, people need to have a meeting to make decisions and they have to have a meeting about the meeting and da, 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 which is super common, right? But like ultimately, like um, if we could all start developing better habits around asynchronous communication, you know, having long form discussions on, you know, forums or like GitHub, for example, where you, you can have, you have a history and a log of the decisions, you know, you can refer to it over time. It's there as a resource that's, that's greppable for new employees, right? You're able to kind of take the anxiety factor out because, you know, people don't have to respond 30 seconds after they're pinged on Slack. That's another unfortunate like expectation that we have now where people are just glued to their computers and devices. If someone's not responding, like, where are they? You know, it's, it's async. Like, we should really make it async, you know? Unless it's marked urgent, like, I'm re- going to respond when I can. You're in the queue, like, but you're not in the urgent queue. So unless you put yourself in the urgent queue, right? But don't abuse the urgent queue. Yeah. Do you think that that's gotten better or worse uh, in the pandemic and the rush to remote work? I think it's worse because I think you now have like literally dozens of Slack channels that you're monitoring. There's a lot of chatter for companies that are new to being remote, right? Like people, like there's FOMO, but but the reality is like, even if you're in the office, like, are you literally going to every single meeting? Are you part of every single team's discussions? Are you, you know, like you can't be all in one place. So in a sense, actually having fit, like being physical somewhere, limits you, right? Like your humanity is a limiting factor, but like Slack, it just gives you this window into everybody and everything. And, you know, and so for the information lovers, anonymous, AKA most software engineers, right? Like feeling the need to like have read every thread or respond to everything. It's anxiety inducing. I mean, I, I see it all the time. Like people are constantly, they're eager to jump on things and be helpful, but really like they should just all be stepping back from Slack and like chilling out, you know? We don't need to like be so connected, right? I listened to a podcast recently about this. It was Ezra Klein interviewing uh, Cal Newport, who's the author of like Deep Work. And his new thing is a book he calls The Hyperactive Hive Mind, describing Ooh. exactly this phenomenon of like, we've started organizing work in a way where we're all doing this real-time pinging backwards, back and forth. There are various systemic reasons that push us there, but it makes us less productive and less happy. And figuring out how we can better organize our work so that we are doing more of it 
in batched manners and in asynchronous manners. Because I think there is value in synchronicity for some types of work. One of the reasons we fall into this is that collaboration, collaboration, rapid iteration, do this feedback, go back and forth. Like there is value in that for classes of work. But when all work is done that way, it's miserable. And so thinking about how we organize ourselves so that we batch together our synchronous work and do it effectively and we're doing it at roughly the same times or roughly the same time windows. And then we have long times of period for deeper work, for focused work, for stuff that is not getting interrupted all the time, I think is super valuable. Yeah. I can't believe we haven't talked about deep work and focus. I mean, this could be like a series. This could be its own podcast. We could like literally every week we could pick a topic and just go deep because no pun intended. Yeah, Thomas in the chat highlights, I got the book name wrong. I was going to say, can we put the book in the show notes? Definitely. Book is called A World Without Email. Oh my God. Yeah. And that'd be great. The podcast was great. He over pushes a little bit. I think he, he is more hesitant to acknowledge some of the value points of this mode of working, but a lot of his points are just so so spot on. Yeah, I've, I've never heard that term like hive thinking. I mean, that, that sounds so appropriate from like what I've been seeing with like remote teams. It's a little much. Yeah. When the pandemic first started over a year ago now, um, it was really hard. Like I was in the same situation as K-Ball with figuring out childcare and all of that. It was really hard to try and figure out how to work productively. And it's gotten much better now. But one thing that I am going to be thankful for, I think, post-pandemic, if that's such a thing, is that everyone, like at my company, where 90% of the people go to the same building every day, and I am not going to be one of those people, I am thankful that maybe they won't forget about me and the three or four other people who are remote, because they have seen, they've lived that for a year. Don't you... <laughs> forget about me are we gonna maybe like do we have to do copyrights for this too if i sing it don't 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 just kidding i won't i'll i'll, I'll stop now it's less than 25 seconds i don't know how many episodes we have in a row now of someone singing but we should keep this streak rolling yep it's okay release the soundtrack the need for me to sing was so strong that i had to interrupt uh nick i was like no nope. <laughs> i think you're spot on i think moving to a world where remote is a more part of the thinking is going to be helpful for everyone who works remote. And we're moving back to a world where we can actually be in person some of the time is going to help all of our mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been wonderfully therapeutic, hopefully helpful. Do either of you have, actually, let me put you on the spot. Each of you, one final parting thought, something that you would put out there to the universe for people to think about, try, or do with related to making work environments better. I'll go first. Shameless plug. I work at a company focused on this. That's one of the reasons I'm so excited about it. Check it out my company, Humu, uh, both as a potential place to work because we are hiring engineers or as a place to help your place of work get better. There's so much involved in this and there's so many different systemic aspects that it really helps to be thinking about it systemically and not just trying to do it as an individual. Mine is be kind to yourself. Like, cut yourself some slack. It's been a really difficult, uh, not just year, I think several years, you know? So just uh, take it easy, yo. This is a really hard industry to be a part of and stay a part of. And so um, just acknowledge that you are doing your best and um, your best is good enough, actually. That's it. 
All right. I'll build on top of that and say, acknowledge that your coworkers are doing their best too. Yeah. Just sitting in silence or reading things on Slack. I read everything with a very snarky tone. So I assume that everybody's mad at me or, or, uh, it can feel isolating You're not getting any feedback ever. So go out of your way to give feedback. Can I give you some feedback right now? Oh no. <laughs> no, you're, you're awesome, Nick. <laughs> That's my feedback to you. Thank Put you. that in a, in a while loop, you know. It's just going to infinitely run. So that's forever feedback from me. Thanks, Amal. And likewise. You're, you're welcome. Excellent. Well, thank you both. I appreciate both of you as feedback. And uh, <laughs> this has been another fun episode, JS Party. Check us live Thursdays, 10 o'clock Pacific, 12 Central, I think is what folks say, since... So many of you are based central. One o'clock Eastern. We record live. You can join us live streaming on YouTube. Woohoo! But we'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to JS Party. We appreciate you spending your time with us. If you dig what we're putting out, please do tell a friend about the show. Personal recommendations are the number one way people find new podcasts they love. This episode was hosted by K-Ball, produced by Jared Santo, with music by our beat freak in residence, Breakmaster Cylinder. JS Party is brought to you by awesome sponsors. Check out Fastly, Linode, and LaunchDarkly. Next up on JS Party, Nick and myself discuss the big Dino company news, play a crazy new game I dreamed up. It's called Head Lies, and give some shout outs to awesome software projects you should be using. Stay tuned for that one coming at you next week.